Our focus in this particular section of the scripture is on what it means to pray for joy. And we are going to have as our launching point Galatians 5 and verse 22 again. But before I get into that, I want to share with you an experience that I had this week. Some of you might have been following along with the Asbury revival and the events that are going on in Kentucky. If you haven't been following along or aren't up to speed on that, I'll give you a little bit of context and background. Uh, last Wednesday, it began in Wilmore, Kentucky. If you've been to Wilmore, it is an out-of-the-way small town, a beautiful, quaint little town. And the Asbury University and Asbury Seminary are there. And in chapel service last Wednesday, a chapel speaker brought a message from Romans chapter 12, focusing on the love of God. He went through some exposition uh, very plainly and directly of that uh, scripture. And then students stayed after the sermon was over, and it seems as though God has touched the place. Uh, Asbury is in the Wesleyan and holiness tradition. It is non-denominational. It does not receive any funds from any type of denomination. Uh, there are pluses and minuses with it, I'm sure. I don't know all the ins and outs of the school. The university and the seminary are actually organizationally separate entities. And I'm familiar with the president, particularly of the seminary, because we used his world missions book and global theology book in a PhD seminar, and it was very solid, very good material, and uh, very helpful to me in uh, thinking about uh, global uh, world theology. And from the perspective of Psalm 85 and verse 6, it says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I want us to think for a moment about what revival is, and, and then I want to share with you the specific experience that I had on Monday. Stephen Olford said in his Seeking Him uh, piece, Revival is not some emotion or worked-up excitement. It is rather an invasion from heaven which brings a man to a conscious awareness of God. Richard, Richard Owen Roberts said, Revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, A revival is something that can only be explained as the direct action and intervention of God. J.I. Packer said, Revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. And then finally, Leonard Ravenhill said, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. So Monday of this week, uh, I decided that I was going to drive over to uh, Asbury. My son Nathan had gone over the weekend on a long drive, got there very late at night, and he wanted to see what was going on uh, in the chapel there. And I shared that online, some of you may have seen that. And on Monday, uh, I went along with Pastor Eric and uh, Pastor Isaiah, and we went to Hughes Chapel. Uh, if you followed the progression of how this has gone about, uh, nightly especially, Hughes is full, Estes Chapel across the street is full, and then they've opened up a third overflow point, and then there are also people waiting on the steps of both of these places to get in, and all of them are standing room only. Uh, we were able, because of the time of the day that we arrived there, to get into Hughes Chapel, which is the main building there, the main chapel. 
and it was standing room only. We were up in the balcony, uh, went into the right-hand side so that we could see down. And the way that I would describe the room was that it was filled with peace and the presence of God. That's the best way that I can describe it. I've seen other people since I had those thoughts of what it was like describe it in as well as an overwhelming sense of peace um, as the people were gathered there together. One of the things that's really been great about this as well is it is a pretty much a nameless, faceless movement that has been originated from the students and is being shepherded by much of the staff. So it's not been co-opted by people that are outlandish or people that would use it for their own purposes, at least so far. And when we got there, there was an older man who was leading in prayer. He was leading in prayer for repentance of sin, for humility, and then he began to pray for evangelism and reaching people uh, with the gospel. At one point, after he moved through that, those prayer times, he began to focus on praying for the younger generation that is experiencing so much anxiety and depression. And he had the students who were in the room stand up, and anybody that wanted to gather around them, gather around them and pray specifically for those issues. And then he transitioned to praying for sexual purity among the young people because there's so much that's coming against them and, and just uh, everything that they're dealing with. And then after that, he prayed for more realization of the presence of Jesus and prayed that the church would not just have a prayer team, but that the church would be the prayer team. And he said, nothing happens until prayer happens. One of the striking things about it as well is there was no really anything outstanding about it from a performance standpoint. There certainly wasn't any performance. It was primarily led by students uh, leading in worship. They were singing a mix of old hymns as well as newer songs. Uh, it is well, uh, I surrender all, uh, Holy Spirit, as well as songs like a, a beautiful name, what a beautiful name and the goodness of God. They had staff across the front that was, uh, that, who were praying for people coming and uh, there were, the altar was full the whole time. People were just coming and kneeling and praying on their own, and then if they wanted somebody to pray for them, uh, there was staff that was receiving them there to pray with them, and there was a steady stream of people coming and going in uh, the buildings and in the campus, because this is a functional university, and it's close to midterms right now, so there's a lot going on. There's also people coming from all over. Uh, Nathan experienced pretty much the same thing. Uh, there was a, a little bit more scripture read when he was there, as well as uh, somebody came to Christ uh, during the time, a couple hours that they were there, and uh, had pretty much the same report uh, of what he saw. Uh, Richard Blackaby said, every revival in history has had its critics, usually within the church, because they disagreed with how God was doing it. Ultimately, any movement that we would call a revival or an awakening, and uh, awakening is actually the term that Dr. Tennant has used, who is the president of Asbury Seminary. Uh, he wrote a piece online that I read last night, and he's using the word awakening uh, with a little bit of caution of whether or not it's going to be a full-blown, widespread awakening and revival uh, to see what God does through it. And so whether it's a, a revival or an awakening, uh, God does some unusual things in unusual places in his timing. 
And when God touches a place, uh, there are lives changed. And I think when you're focusing on repentance of sin, humility in your spirit, the importance of the gospel, uh, purity among young people, I mean, these are all things that we would wholeheartedly agree with and celebrate. And the other thing that happens when genuine revival and awakening comes is it tends to have a ripple effect, and it spreads to other places. Uh, in, in the Asbury Revival, for example, in 1970, when it happened there another time, um, there were ripple effects all the way to places like Southwestern Seminary, where people's lives were changed that, that were in ministry, and there's still stories and histories that are told of what God did through that to, to work in people's lives. And so it's not up to us ultimately to say what the results are or really even to be the judge of the results. Uh, we can look at the evidence of it and we can look at what the fruit from it is. But I can promise you this, if you are not living with a sense of expectation, you're not going to experience a fresh touch from God. If you're not living with a sense of faith and renewal and really an expectancy of what God could do, you're not going to experience it. And the one, of the one of the things that was particularly striking to me just about the, the room that I was in is just that there were so many people so eager to come and just to wait and to see what God's doing. And ultimately, that should be how we are in our worship, not just in a moment that seems like a stirring of revival or a stirring of an awakening, but when we come to worship, it should be a sense of expectancy. It should be a sense of of anticipation of what God is going to do, of putting ourselves in such a spiritual posture that we're ready for whatever he's going to do and that we have a hunger for that. So it's encouraging to me, especially to see in the darkness of the cultural moment that we live in spiritually, to see how God is working through people with a sense of hunger and anticipation of what he might do through that. And God sometimes does his best work and his most evident work in the darkest of hours. And when we need it the most, when we need a renewal and a revived spirit. So I wanted to share that with you. Uh, I've not written anything about it online because it's, it's a little bit overwhelming even. And I just felt like it's just like a weight to it. And it's like, how do you communicate this, really? Uh, Nathan did a good job communicating what he saw and what he experienced. Uh, but I decided rather than putting anything out there, I wanted to share it with you all tonight. Uh, to just share a little bit with you about what I what I saw when I was there, and it might be of interest to you to follow along even uh, as you see some things that are on social media and otherwise. So I want to shift gears now, and I want to, by way of review, just remind us where we've come from in this prayer emphasis, and then talk about the subject before us uh, in this particular session. We talked about the importance of walking with God daily of having a sense of adoration, being in awe of God, reverence of Him, uh, being willing to confess our sins. And i tell you one thing I know about confession is confession requires humility. And if you don't have humility, you'll never see wrongs. If you don't have humility, you'll never see yourself in light of uh, who God is and what He might be doing in your life through His Word and His Spirit. So a spirit of confession, also a spirit of thanksgiving and just having a gratitude toward God for his goodness in our lives, and then supplication uh, slash intercession of praying for other people as well as praying for your own needs, and then praying for love as I introduced the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. 
Now, you remember that the Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit in our lives as we submit to the power of God. This is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. So I want to state it this way. Fruit is a natural result of growth. If we are not producing spiritual fruit, that means we're not surrendered to the Spirit, we're not humbling ourselves in a confessional attitude, and we are not growing spiritually because the fruit is not evident, it's not there. And uh, these are characteristics or quality that qualities that God produces in our life. And the next part of Galatians 5 and verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And what is joy? Well, joy is the spiritual reaction to the work of God. Uh, the word appears 200 times in the Bible. So joy is a big deal in the Bible. It is a significant issue for God's people and God's teaching to us. Joy ultimately is a condition of the heart. Joy and happiness are similar, but they're not exactly the same. And here's how I would uh, delineate between the two. Joy is from within. So I would describe it as inner gladness or delight. Happiness is affected externally and can be affected by circumstances, by conflict, and by chaos. So inner gladness and delight and joy that is from within is something that God produces in you. Doesn't matter what's going on externally, it can be a settled joy. Now, you might not have happiness at the moment. It might not be an outward happiness. But even if you're dealing with a life difficulty or some situation that is very challenging for you, you can still have joy. And the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what I want to do in these few minutes that we have together is I want us to think through this again uh, from a topical approach, but anchored in this joy that comes as a fruit of the Spirit. And I want to begin with this. Pray for joy in the presence of God. And I want to go back to a passage of Scripture that we considered earlier on in this study. It's actually one of my favorite Psalms that I think will be helpful in uh, really uh, setting the table for us understanding what uh, joy is and where it comes from. So I begin reading here in Psalm 16, and I'm going to read verse 7 through 11. He says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel uh, and always let the Lord guide me. It's literally, I place the Lord always in front of me. So the translation is, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Now, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. And then he says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Now, if you remember anything about this psalm, you remember that it's not designated as a psalm of David, but I believe it is a psalm of David. Peter quotes it verbatim in Acts chapter 2 and verse 25 to 28. It is a psalm of confidence. He says, the Lord is his portion in life. The Lord will preserve him. So it's comp uh, comprised of an introduction with a prayer and a statement of faith and then communicates a contrast between those who maintain God as their God and those who would seek after false gods. 
So it's those who have confidence in the character of God, the presence of God, the promises of God, and those who would chase after idols. And here's what David's confident of. He is confident that God will preserve him from an untimely death, and he will grant him a rich, full life because God is his portion and will not allow him to be overcome. So think about it this way. The Lord is before us. He's beside us. He's all around us, and he is always with us. I want to say that again. The Lord is before us. He's beside us. He's all around us, and God is always with us. Now, where does this joy come from in the presence of God? Well, there's joy in the presence of the Lord because he guides his people. Verse 7, the Lord tells us what to do and what not to do. And you remember David, on many nights, the Lord instructed David when he didn't know what to do, he didn't know how to handle particular situations he was in, his enemies were after him, he had all types of opposition, he had all these complications, and the Lord's counsel was his instruction. Now there's a word that is used here which refers to the inner organs or literally even uh, the kidneys. And in Hebrew thinking, it was the center of a person's feelings and emotions, much like the idea of the heart. So the Lord works in the innermost part of a person. And he gives us instruction from his word. He gives us training in righteousness. So I say to you, if you're looking for direction, the Lord will give it to you. If you want to have joy, then you need to follow the Lord's direction because the Lord is the one who guides his people. There's also joy in the presence of the Lord because he guards his people. In verse 8, he references the right hand of God, the right hand of the Lord. Now, in ancient writing, the right hand represented strength and power. So here's what David's communicating. He's saying, listen, there is nothing that can shake us because of the power of God in our lives to guard us. And Jesus promises the same thing. So we have this promise that the presence of the Lord is going to guard our lives. Now, ultimately, it doesn't always mean that we're going to be delivered from a temporal circumstance, right? There are times where things might go so wrong that it might even lead unto death. But no matter what we would face in this life or how bad it would be, the fact that God is with us, guarding us, helps us to know that we are safe with him eternally. And then there's joy in the presence of the Lord because he goes with his people. You'll notice here in verses 9 through 11 that God is with us eternally even when we meet death. And, And the reality is death brings fear for all of us in the flesh. But if we have faith in God, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there's a beautiful messianic implication here. Because 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross, there is a prediction here of Jesus' resurrection. It's implied, but it's the idea that the Lord would not abandon us in Sheol. That's the Hebrew reference in general to the afterlife. He would not allow us uh, to undergo corruption. And that is used in reference to the Messiah. 
the joy that we have in the Lord ultimately results in the presence of God in heaven. And there's no greater promise we could possibly have that would bring us any more joy that nothing could separate us from the love of God. Death nor life nor anything in between could separate us from him. And it's an amazing thing to think that the God of the universe, the creator, is everywhere. In fact, I would say it's almost mind-blowing to ponder uh, that God is everywhere and yet he is with us. Someone said that means that no atomic particle is so small that God is not fully present in it. And no galaxy is so vast that God does not surround it. You remember when King Solomon brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the new temple to be uh, built in honor of God, that the Lord's presence filled the temple as a cloud. And Solomon then dedicated that ornate building to God while at the same time he was pondering the, the mystery of the fact that God would dwell on the earth. And he said, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? And the Lord responded that, yes, he was there in the temple, that his name would be there forever. And he said, my eyes and my heart will always be there. And that reminds us that God promises to never leave his people. The prophets understood the same truth. Time and time again, God seeks to remind his people that he is with them. Jesus, in the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, told his disciples, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So from the beginning of God's word, when he was in the Garden of Eden with our first parents, all the way to John's revelation, where God promises to welcome his people into the eternal city, he assures us of his never-ending presence with us. But here's the question. If God is with us, are we aware of his presence or do we take it for granted? Are we living in such a way that we would be living with an expectation of awaiting for God to make a, a, a fresh touch in our lives and to stir us? And one of the things I told the guys as we were headed over to uh, Asbury on Monday, I said, listen, it's like the old uh, revivalist Gypsy Smith said, he said that he said he would draw a circle around himself and he would say, Lord, revive us and let it begin with me. And it has to start with us. And regardless of what anybody else is experiencing or what anybody else is doing in their own obedience or what anybody else is doing in the surrender to the Lord, are we surrendered to God and saying, God, we want to experience the power of your presence with us through your spirit. And I would say to you that being aware of God in our daily lives requires intentionality. As the Lord guides, he guards, and he goes. And then second, pray for joy as you ask and receive that your joy may be full. I look now to John chapter 16 and verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, until now, he's speaking to his disciples, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Now you'll remember that this was a part of a conversation that Jesus had on the night of his arrest. Leading up to this, he gave his disciples explicit instructions on how to pray. 
And the statement here focuses in specifically on the idea of praying in the name of Jesus. So the idea is pointing to his authority and to his will in making our requests known to God. Now, the promise is made to those who pray in the name of Jesus. Get this distinction. Not just those who use the name of Jesus. And what I'm referring to here is that this is not some magic prayer where we can make God do what we want him to do or get what we want or somehow uh, manipulate the circumstances. But rather, we are surrendering ourselves to him, recognizing that Jesus is the way we have access to God the Father to begin with. We realize this is how God in his economy has designed it, that we would pray and he would answer, that we would ask and he would give and we would receive. But in that, we're yielding ourselves to him. And the name of Jesus is important because the name Jesus means literally Yahweh saves. It means Yahweh is salvation. So translated from Hebrew and uh, Aramaic, the name is Yeshua. It's a combination of Yah, an abbreviation for Yahweh, which is the name of Israel's God, and uh, Yasa, or a verb meaning to deliver or to save. So if you track with this, the English spelling of the Hebrew Yeshua is Joshua, and when translated from Hebrew into Greek into English, it's Jesus. This is the connection. So Yeshua and correspondingly, Joshua and Jesus mean Yahweh saves. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying in the idea that the Lord is our salvation. There is a direct application of why we pray in the name of Jesus. And then there are some specific applications depending on what we're praying for. Let me, let me illustrate this. I want you to think for a moment about the seven I am statements of Jesus uh, that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And I want you to think specifically in the context of how this can help you pray, how it can broaden your prayer life. Because sometimes we get bogged down, we don't realize what we need to be praying for, we might pray repetitively, we're not understanding the, all the, the breadth of what God has invited us into. And we can take something like this and understand with a greater depth how to pray. The seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. What had Jesus just done leading up to that? He had fed the 5,000. He fed the hungry. So what is Jesus to us? He is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger, but he's also the one who has instructed us to pray for our daily bread, right? In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus is the one who is the one who satisfies our spiritual need as the bread of life. But then he's the one who's also told us how to pray for our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. So you can take a phrase like, I am the bread of life and a designation of Jesus, praying in Jesus' name. And you can apply that to both of those uh, situations. He says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. What did he do in the context of the statement, I am the light of the world? He healed a man born blind. Jesus is the one who shines light into the darkness. And I tell you where I want to live my life. I want to live my life in the light. I want to live my life in the light of the Son of God. 
And I want him to light my way because he is the light of the world. He came into the darkness, but the darkness knew him not. And when we live our lives in dependence on the light of the world, then our lives are going to be an example to other people. We're going to shine the light on how they too can know him. Uh, we're going to have the word of God, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And what we need to do is continually step into the light because you realize God has a pathway for us to walk. He, he has a direction that he wants us to go in. But you know what the enemy wants us to do? He wants us to just edge over here in the darkness just a little bit. Hey, it'll be okay over here. Everybody else is over here in the darkness. Why don't you edge over in the darkness? And you know what the darkness does? The darkness draws our selfishness in. It appeals to our flesh. It appeals to the things that are more base in our nature if they're not lived redemptively. And constantly the Spirit of God is saying to you, step back over here into the light. Step into the Word of God. Be led by the Spirit of God. Don't be deceived by others who might not be walking in the light. Be sure that your life is in the light. And then John chapter 10 and verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door. And no one else uh, can help us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's no other door by which we enter into the kingdom of heaven except Jesus. And we step through that door because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He follows that in John chapter 10 and verse 7, uh, or verse 11 rather, and he says, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He cares for and protects his flock even to the point of death. And that's one of the beautiful things about the church is that uh, Jesus is the bridegroom uh, in, a, in another illustration of it scripturally. Uh, we are the bride, but Jesus is not only the cornerstone of the church, but he's the good shepherd and he's the chief shepherd. And what does that say to us? It says to us that the church belongs to God. The church doesn't belong to us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about what's convenient for us. It's not about what our personal agendas are. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about keeping our eyes on the good shepherd. And the good shepherd will never lead you astray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The good shepherd of Jesus will care for us and protect us even to the point of death. John chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus made a claim and then he backed it up. Jesus is the first fruits. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. We are raised from spiritual death to life, but we also be raised from physical death to life. And this is our hope as well. So when we think about the power of God at work in our lives, we're talking about resurrection power. There's no greater power than power that can raise someone from the dead. And Jesus possesses that power. He embodies that power. And your salvation is wrapped up in the resurrection power of Jesus. And then in John 14 and verse 6, I already referred to this, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The living word is the way to God, and he is the embodiment of truth. And then finally, in John 15 and verse 1 and verse 5, he says, I am the true vine. We can bear fruit as branches in vital union with the vine. So let me ask you this question. It's an obvious answer. How do we bear fruit? We bear fruit by being indwelled by the Spirit of God, by abiding in Jesus, by surrendering and yielding ourselves to him. He's the vine. 
We're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And don't you want your life to be a fruit-bearing life? Don't you want joy to be produced in your life? How are you going to get joy? You're going to get joy because you're praying in the realization that you are in the true vine. And he's producing it. So in summary, to pray in the name of Jesus is in keeping with his will and his nature. God does not want everything for you that you want for yourself. Let me say that again. God does not want everything for you that you want for yourself. And I'm going to say it another way. I'm so thankful that God has not answered a number of my prayers through the years. What I thought I wanted. Because he knows better. So what I'm constantly praying is, God, help me to sense in my spirit if this is the right thing to be praying for. Is it the right motivation? Is it the right direction? Is it your will? And is it in the name and the authority and the power of Jesus? And then next, you need to pray for joy as you are believing in Jesus. Pray for joy as you're believing in Jesus. And I've got to move quickly here, but 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your faith and mine is about trusting in and loving the person of Jesus. Now think about who's writing this. This is Peter that's writing this, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Peter had seen Jesus. He was trained by Jesus. He tabernacled with Jesus in the transfiguration. He served with Jesus. And I want you to just pause for a second and think about what it must have been like. Just imagine for a moment, three years of personal face-to-face experience with the Son of God. What that must have been like. Peter saw Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. But now here's a segue in this passage. For the most part, the people Peter wrote to had never seen Jesus with their own eyes. And Peter, who had seen him, Peter, who had been up close and personal, Peter, who had been chastised and then restored by him, Peter is amazed himself that they're believing and they're loving Jesus and they hadn't seen him. Like, he's taken aback with the people who had not seen him and yet believed and loved Jesus without seeing him. And I think in part, Peter probably recalled the words of Jesus to Thomas, who believed in the resurrection only after personally seeing Jesus' wounds. In the words in John 20 and verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus' disciples were at first resistant to the idea that he had been resurrected. They heard him predict that it was coming. They saw the man raise other people from the dead. Eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive. And it wasn't until they saw him that they truly and fully believed. Now we have the spirit of God dwelling in us 
But here's the reality. We doubt from time to time as well. Oh, it might just be a fleeting doubt. It might not be a season of doubt. It might not be a crisis of faith. It might not be something major drawn out. But just those little twinges of doubt every now and again where we really begin to think about what it is that we are believing in. And faith and love that is this real, that continues to believe, even though having not seen, ultimately results in joy. Because saving faith in Jesus brings with it a joy that cannot be expressed. There are words that cannot fully express it. And 1 Peter 1 and verse 9 completes the idea that Peter began with in verse 8, meaning that faith in Christ has an outcome, it has a result. It is a faith that is leading up to something. And I like the way the commentator Clark put it. He said, in short, there is an equality between the believers in the present time and those who lived in the time of the Incarnation. For Christ, to a believing soul, is the same today that he was yesterday and will be forever. And the end of your faith will be the return of Jesus or going to be in the presence of Jesus and ultimately the salvation of your souls. Wayne Grudem said the word translated in English as joy inexpressible occurs only here in the New Testament. And it describes a joy so profound as to be beyond the power of words to express. Joy comes from faith in the Jesus whom we love, and this is heaven-born joy. Finally, pray for joy in the comfort of God. Psalm 94 and verse 19 says this, When I am filled with cares, that literally means when anxiety is great within me, or in the multitude of my thoughts, your comfort your consolation brings me joy. Do you ever sometimes just get caught up in your circumstances and you get overwhelmed? You ever just get caught up in your anxiety that's great within you and just get, kind of get wrapped up in the multitude of your thoughts? We all do from time to time. But here's what the Word is telling us. Even in the midst of adversity and anxiety, God brings encouragement and support. There's something else surrounding this verse that I want to make a brief point about. In Psalm 94, the writer makes it clear that vengeance belongs to God. And there is a great difference between vengeance and revenge. God is the judge of the earth. God's glory shines forth regardless of what the circumstances are. Why? Because God knows the thoughts of man. He knows the thoughts that are senseless. He knows our limitations. And he's the one who ultimately deals with wrong. And here's what the psalmist knew. The Lord had been and would be his help. So the mercy of God holds us up and God is our defense. So when he speaks here of consolation... Ultimately, our only consolation is in the Lord. And what God's consolation does is it quiets an anxious heart and it gives us joy. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how it describes him. The Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. It's interesting in the context of those verses from 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 through 7. Did you know Paul uses different forms of the word consolation 10 times 
You think he was trying to emphasize something? You think he was trying to share a message? You think he wanted us to know something about where our consolation comes from? He's trying to tell us that it's the God of all consolation who knows suffering. He knew the suffering of sending his only son. He's the one who provides comfort for all who are afflicted. And I want you to note here that the same word that is translated as consolation is the same word that John used to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as the comforter who abides in us, who teaches us, who guides us into truth, who grants us peace, who empowers us to join God in his work in the world. And James put it this way in a familiar passage you'll know in James chapter 1 and verse 2 through 4. He said, consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You know why he talks about uh, various trials? Because we all experience them in various ways. It's common to life. But as believers, we can respond to them with joy. And he says, consider it all joy. Count it all joy. It's also translated. That's an accounting term which relates to organizing or collecting something. So we should enter our hardships as deposits into the checkbook of our life, not as withdrawals. And I get it. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. But you know what it requires? It requires faith. And the reason we count a trial as joyful is because it will test our faith. A trial will create a situation where you don't know exactly how things are going to work out. You don't know exactly what the end is going to be, but you trust God and then he provides. And because of its supernatural origin, the joy of the Lord, our gladness of heart is not dependent on circumstances. In fact, I would say it might be dependent on circumstances because that might just be where you experience the deepest joy of the Lord. Because you're brought to the end of yourself. When we are in a position where we are self-sufficient and the seas are smooth and glassy and the wind might barely be a breeze or we're up on the mountaintop, as it were, it doesn't require faith. Not much of it anyway. But let me tell you, when you're in the middle of the tempest and the wind is blowing strong and the skies are dark and you don't know what's coming next, It's there that you find the sufficiency of God as your consolation, your comfort. And it's there that your faith grows. So I close with these verses in Philippians 4 and verse 4 and 5. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone, because the Lord is near. That's our takeaway. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Maybe tonight you're not feeling very joyful. There's something that you're dealing with that's concerning you. It's a heavy weight. Would you take a moment to ask the Lord to lift that off of you? To know that he is your comfort and your consolation? Can you rejoice in the Lord always because he is able to meet you at your point of need? Maybe just struggling with joy in general, not necessarily feeling it. 
Would you take a moment to ask the Lord to restore your joy? To renew it? To refresh it? Maybe even if you need it, for God to revive it in you? He can do it. He'll help you. Father, we are broken vessels. A people with clay feet. And we are so dependent on you. Thank you for meeting us at our point of need. Teach us what it means to humble ourselves in your sight. Teach us what it means to believe even though we have not seen. Show us what it means to pray in the name of Jesus boldly, with confidence, expecting, waiting, believing. And I pray, God, that in our lives we would grow because we are vitally connected to the vine. And as your branches, you're producing in us the fruit of joy. Teach us to pray for that, to pursue it, to long for it. And I pray that we as a people, as a church, as a body of believers, that we would have joy, a deep and abiding joy in the ebbs and flows of life and the ups and downs, that we would find our joy in you. Jesus, we belong to you. We're a part of your church, your family. And we thank you that our faith is strong and certain, not because of our strength and ability to hold on, but because of your saving and sustaining power. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.